0: The book of Jonah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought, uh, give a thought to us, so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from raging Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, David. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that's living and active Sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord, we pray that you would allow your word to be a searchlight for our hearts, for our souls, for our minds, for our intentions. God, we pray that you would know us as we know you do and and that what you know of us would be made known to us through your word, Lord God. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together in freedom and hear your word. And Lord, we pray that we would not take that opportunity, that freedom for granted But Lord, we would, we would, uh, cling to what is being said to us by the Spirit of God today. Lord, I ask especially, as always, for myself, Lord God. God, I am a very weak vessel, Lord. God, that, that is, is coming up here with many bumps and bruises and scars and, and wounds, Lord God. But Lord, you have, have given me the, the joy, the privilege, the opportunity to share your word. And Lord, I pray that I would do so in a way that would be pleasing to you. And Lord, I just humble myself before you now, and ask you to receive all glory for whatever you choose to do today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So here we are, the uh, book of Jonah. The Old Testament, as I'm sure many of you are well aware, is divided into different categories, different types of, you know what, I forgot to release the kids. I'm sorry, you guys can go, I think you guys are going. Thank you, uh, Narcy for doing my job. <laughs> I completely forgot. So if you're in kindergarten to fifth grade, you can go on to your classes. Sorry about that, Narsi. I always say that I'm on a need to know basis and most things I do not need to know. So, uh, I, I, I missed my, uh, my own cue there. Um, talking about the Old Testament, it's divided into many different categories, different types of literature, different uh, different things that that it, it, uh, even before the age of the church, the Jews had kind of classified it. Uh, and in the Old Testament, we have books of law, we have books of history, we have books of poetry, and and the last section of the Old Testament is the book of pro- books of prophecy and it it, uh, it consists of several different about seventeen different books that um, are basically the the writings or the utterances of prophets that were alive during different time periods in Old Testament history. The last subdivision is what we call the minor prophets. The prophets are divided into major and minor. And the the last 12 books are the minor prophets. And they are called that not because their message is any less important, any less inspired, any less the word of God, but because we know less about them than the major prophets historically. We don't have just a a wealth of biographical information about them um, but so we call them the minor prophets. We also uh, know that their their books generally are a lot shorter than the books of the major prophets. So they kind of get tagged with that. I even think it's kind of a misnomer to call them the minor prophets. Um, now it's also safe to assume that most people, no matter how biblically literate you are, do not generally spend a lot of time in the minor prophets. Take a survey. Raise your hand if your favorite passage in scripture is found in the book of Nahum. Raise your hand. Obadiah. Raise your hand. Zephaniah. Come on, somebody. We don't spend a lot of time in the, in the minor prophets, and that's unfortunate, because there's a lot of great, deep, meaty material in the minor prophets, as uh, hopefully we'll find uh, as we look at the book of Jonah. And there's something else about the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah, what I just said about the Minor Prophets, is the, is the vast exception. Because if I asked you, before David Burke read that, that passage today, who has heard the story of Jonah? Raise your hand. It's the exception. In the Minor Prophets, everybody knows the story of Jonah. It, it it's a it, it, you know it, almost everybody i'm certain has heard of it especially if you've grown up in church the the story of jonah is great sunday school fare it's, it's it makes for great images on a flannel board with a little uh, prophet sinking into the sea and a giant fish coming kind of, that's great stuff when you're 5 years old in sunday school it's a great thing to hear as a bedtime story and it makes an incredible veggie tales movie all of this is true. But the fact of the matter is, there is more to the book of Jonah than probably a Sunday school story, or a bedtime story, or a Veggie Tales movie. There's more to that, and we need to find out what it is. Even otherwise secular people know this story. Why? What is so significant about this story? Because what we want to do is we want to ask ourselves, what does this story of this particular prophet say not to little children? Now, we're all about teaching little children. We've got some wonderful people in the back right now teaching children the gospel. They're not babysitting. They're not just playing with Play-Doh and cutting out pictures. They're they're teaching them the gospel. But what we want to know is, what does this story say to 21st century adults like you and I? Does it say anything? What does it say in an age where science is often falsely pitted against faith? What does it say in a church like ours that puts so much emphasis on the gospel of the New Testament? That, that, that What can an old story, an old Jewish story about an ancient prophet teach us about ourselves? What can it teach us about Jesus? These are the kind of things we're going to ask. These are the kind of things we're hopefully going to answer over the next few weeks, as we together hold hands and jump into a boat, and then jump into an ocean, and then jump into a fish, and then walk across Nineveh with this old prophet named Jonah. Now there are three characters in this story, chapter one of this story, that we're going to take a look at today. One, of course, is Jonah. The next would be the sailors on the boat that Jonah was on. And the third is going to be God himself. So let's begin. Jonah was a prophet from Israel. Now, when I say Israel, I'm making a distinction there. If you'll recall the story of the history of Israel, the, the, the nation of Israel had divided by God's design, into two separate nations. There was a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. Jonah was from the north in Israel. He he had a successful ministry as a prophet of God. We know that because if you go back to the historical books of the Bible, you go to 2 Kings in chapter 14, you read this passage. It says, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah... The son of Joash, the king of Judah. Now remember, Judah is the southern kingdom. And Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria. So this is the, now we're talking about the northern kingdom. Now listen, he said, he reigned 41 years. And he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, as just as a side note, all of the kings of Israel did. There were good kings and bad kings in Judah. There were no good kings in Israel. They were all wicked, evil men. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. That was the first king of Israel, uh, which he caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel to the, to the from Lebo Hamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord that, that God had spoken. Now, those details probably don't mean anything to you, that's okay. What I want you to see is this. That restoration of boundaries happened for this reason. Because it was accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, who we're reading about today, the prophet from gath So Jonah knew, this is why I read you that passage. This is what I want you to get. This is what I want you to, what I want you to really understand before you start thinking about prophets being swallowed by fish. Jonah knew what it was to hear the voice of the Lord. He knew it. He had already had success in the ministry and and under the calling of a prophet. He knew it. He knew what it was. He knew how it felt. He knew what the experience was like to speak to powerful men, even evil powerful men like King Jeroboam II. He he knew what it was like to speak to them and to see them respond to the word that God had given them. He'd been sent to wicked King Jeroboam II of Israel and he'd spoken God's word to him and the king listened and it resulted in the restoration of lands uh, to the kingdom of Israel that had previously been lost by them. He knew what it was like to obey God, to speak for God and to see results from doing so. So we would expect, it would be a reasonable expectation that we could expect that every assignment he received from the Lord God would be met with joyful expectation of a glorious result no matter who the audience is. But, in this story, that's not what we see, is it? We see just the opposite. This is the word. Let's look at it again. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish and from the presence of the Lord. We don't see this successful prophet operating in any faith whatsoever. All we see is him operating in defiance. He's saying no to God. If you look at a map of the places in the story that are mentioned, Jonah doesn't just go somewhere different. He doesn't retreat to the mountains to, to kind of whimper and whine and, and pout. He literally goes in the polar opposite direction. Nineveh is far to the east of Jerusalem, but Tarshish is far to the west. And so so he 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 goes as far in the other direction from where God has told him to go as he could go. Nineveh uh, was was so far away that that Tarshish was literally in their understanding of the world, the other side of the world. But there was something more problematic than even that. The Bible doesn't tell us that, that Jonah was merely trying to flee some assignment from the Lord. If you look at the words again, it says that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Now what you've got to understand is he wasn't just saying no thanks to God. He was saying goodbye to God. He was saying, nope, I'm out of here. I'm leaving. I'm packing up. I'm gone. He wanted nothing more to do with God. Nothing more to do with God's word. Nothing more to do with his covenants. Nothing more to do with his truth. Nothing more to do with his call. He was fleeing from the presence of God. Psalms one hundred ninety three 139, rather, verse 7, points out to us that that's a big problem. Huge problem. Because this is what David wrote. He said, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol or the grave, guess what? You're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. If I say surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be as night, even the darkness isn't dark to you. The night is as bright as the day for the darkness is as light to you. Listen, no child of God is ever out of His sight even when we want to be. You can't escape it. His gaze is all seeing. His 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 mind is all knowing. But Jonah was what we like to call a stubborn rascal. So he went down to Joppa, the Bible tells us, and he found the ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare. He went down into the ship to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. That's the second time we get that that phrase. First he fled, now he's going away from the presence of the Lord. And what I want you to know from this, this is where it gets a little personal. It's not just historical. All of us as believers, at one point, or another. I'm not talking about the, when we were lost. I'm talking about as believers, all of us have paid our fare and gone aboard ship at some point. All of us have said, nope, I'm going. I'm packing up. I'm fleeing the presence of the Lord. I'm fleeing the, the weight and, the, and the, the demands of the word of the Lord. I'm out. And we've done it. Or, or when we've done it, we've we've or we've done it when we've when we've made excuses not to share the gospel with our perishing neighbors. The Bible says you are to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. And we have we've said no. I'm fleeing from the word of the Lord. I'm fleeing from the presence of the Lord, just like Jonah. But that's not it. We've done it also when we've refused to forgive those who've offended us. And when we've chosen worldliness over holiness. We've said no to the word of the Lord. No to the presence of the Lord. And we've chosen to flee instead. But God in this story. One of the reasons it's so important for us to hear it. God demonstrates his commitments to his purposes in this story. So here's Jonah Safely on ship, the, the call of God behind him, not a care in the world. And then we read this. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. This was no freak coincidence, folks. This wasn't just, you know, their, their, their Doppler radar hadn't failed on the boat. This is something that was God intervening to bring about His purpose. It was truly, as the insurance companies like to say, truly an act of God. God had spoken and He would not be ignored. Jonah's life And the lives of all the other men. Think about this element. I never heard what I'm about to say in in Sunday school. Never once. But Jonah's life and all the other men on the ship were jeopardized because of one man's rebellion and disobedience. One guy chose to say no to God and all the lives of those sailors were now at risk. Do you see that? Do you see the ripple effect of his disobedience? What does that say to us? Moms, dads. I ask you with all seriousness, will the kids that are sailing in the ship of your family drown because of your bad habits? Will they drown because of your uncrucified character, because of your fleshly pursuits, because of your unbending will, your unbending need towards the will of the Lord? Are those that are in your ship Going to die because of your stubbornness and rebellion. But where's Jonah while all this is going on? While the, while the vessel and the crew are on the very brink of disaster, the Bible tells us. It says, But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Now there's another story in the Bible, as you're well aware, of when there's a storm on the sea and somebody's asleep. That person was Jesus Christ. He's sound asleep. But what I want you to make a distinction here is that the sleep of Jesus was because of his peace and his absolute trust in the provision of the Father. Jonah's sleep was not that kind of sleep. Jonah's sleep was all because of indifference because of selfishness, because of apathy. He did not care anymore and he certainly didn't care about those on board. He was unmoved by the crisis because he was only thinking about his own situation, his indifference, his selfishness, his apathy. What an unfortunate picture of the church of which we're all a part sometimes. The world is literally being hammered by the storms of sin and death, COVID-19, rioting in our streets. And yet we who have all the answers, or should I say the only answer, instead of pointing to Christ, instead of shining the light of life, are fast asleep. Indifferent, apathetic, selfish Romans 13, Paul rouses the church in Rome and he says, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us then cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. My prayer is that God's church will wipe the sleep from our eyes and do what the Lord has commanded. Let's look at the second characters in the story. These sailors on the ship. They started their day like any other day. Beginning a voyage from Joppa to to Tarshish. When God's storm hit, it's kind of a little bit of a humorous thing to see when God's storm hit. It, It turned these bunch of godless, profane mariners into a bunch of religious fanatics really, really quick. You've heard the saying, there are no atheists in foxholes. Well, this is the same principle. The Bible says, when the mariners were afraid, then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. Each of these men had been in many storms before. You can't make your living on the ocean and not experience that. They'd been in many storms before, but none like this one. Their hearts were pounding in their chest, and they wondered if they would survive the night. And they cried out to the various pagan deities that they acknowledged. They were hoping that just one of them, any of them, would hear and would answer and spare their lives. And this is the normal religious course for mankind. I remember hearing a Vietnam vet say one time that while he was in country, he always would wear a cross, a Star of David, and a St. Christopher medal just to make sure that all of his options were covered. It's in the storm the storm of life that we begin to try to appease our gods. If I can only work harder and make a little bit more money, if I can only find the right relationship, whatever it is, but that's where we're trying to call out to whatever gods are out there, hoping that they will settle the storm. We try to make deals and straighten up and fly right, but the true God, the one true God, is not looking for hasty reformations, but He's looking for hearts that are fully surrendered to Him, both in the calm and in the storm. And this tells us, just as a sidebar, that all religious systems are not equal. As they were calling out to false gods, think about what was happening, they're calling out to these idolatrous deities, false deities, and and as they were, they were being exposed for the impotent frauds that they were. They could do nothing. And so they got desperate. The Bible says, And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. In our storms, all of us try everything we can in our own strength, our own power to fix what is wrong. I I, I only, If I only, like I said, had a little bit more money, if I had better health, if I had a new relationship, if I had a greater position at work, then I wouldn't be in this trouble that I'm in. But the verse four says that while they were hurling their stuff into the sea, it says the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Now they're hurling stuff overboard. God's hurling a wind. Who do you think is going to win the hurling contest? Isaiah tells us that God does not faint. That God does not grow weary. He will relentlessly, please hear this, he will relentlessly work his purposes through both storm and calm long after your stuff is all settled on the bottom of the sea. He will not relent. He will see his purposes fulfilled. When the captain hears that the passenger they've taken on is sleeping below decks while they fight this mighty tempest, he is, needless to say, indignant. He comes up, what do you mean, you sleeper? It, it's, he looks at him and he says, What is wrong with you? Arise! Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us and that we may not perish. What, what a shame that it's the world that has to cry out that we would awaken from our apathy. It's embarrassing. He knew the true God. He knew the creator of the universe. He knew the one who the, who the disciples would say that was the master of the winds and the seas. And he was sleeping while they were calling out the false gods for relief that could not come through their hands. And he had to be woken up. After Jonah awakens, the sailors decide to cast lots, kind of like rolling dice. to to find out who's responsible for their trouble. And guess what? The lot fell to Jonah. So horrified, they ask, what have you done? And Jonah tells how he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. When I read that, it shook me. It, It really did. It shook me. Do you imagine, I don't know what judgment day is going to be like, but do you imagine that on the day of judgment, that some of us Will have to answer for those who have perished while we were sleeping. Who will look towards us and say, What have you done? Why were you sleeping while the ship was sinking? You knew! You knew! And you slept. Their eyes will stare at us and wonder why. Well, now the crew knows why they're in trouble. The next question is what to do about it. They say, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up. Pay careful attention to this. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. So we're still hurling stuff into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, though Jonah told them this, nevertheless the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Now what I want you to see, again, something that we never talked about in Sunday school, ever. In fact, Jonah was kind of heralded as a hero, sacrificial guy. Throw me into the water, this will all be over. But this is what I want you to see, that maybe you also have never considered. Notice that in this story, Jonah never repents. Think about that for a minute. He never repents. He never repented of the sin that caused all this trouble. He never calls on the mercy of God. He never uh, mends his ways through obedience while he acknowledges that he's the source of the trouble, he is saying, don't miss this, that he would rather die than do what God has commanded him to do. Think about that. He says, I'm the trouble. Throw me in the water. Now what if he could have said, I'm going to hit my knees right now and repent of my disobedience, my rebellion, my defiance. And I'm going to tell God that I'm going to get these guys to turn this ship back around and I'm going to obey the Lord. Maybe, just maybe, that would have stopped the storm. But nope. There had been so much hardness that had come on Jonah's heart that he would rather die than say yes to the Lord. And I meet people all the time who are in the throes of death because they will not obey God, both literally and physically people that have addictions that that you know they they love so much that they will not surrender the addiction because they 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 don't want to give up what they love so much a, a chemical addiction sexual addictions people that just have philosophies that they've embraced that they won't abandon to believe the truth because they don't want to have to obey God with all of that entails and they'd rather die than say yes to God But what God, but, but God's will will not be so easily thwarted. Oh, you want to die, Jonah? Watch this. What God has willed will not be so easily thwarted. He has already, as you know, because you all raised your hand, you've heard the story, He already has implemented a glorious plan to accomplish His purposes. And yet, you know even though jonah says this throw me over i'm you know i'm the problem i'd rather die the sailors do not dare risk angering the god they've offended by murdering one of his prophets and so they say can't do that so they just row and row and row and go nowhere but exerting effort against what god has decreed never works it does not work you cannot outrow god Job said this. We all know what Job went through. He said, I know that you can do all things and that no purposes of yours can be thwarted. God always wins. God always finishes what he starts. Galatians says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. See, what Jonah was doing when he said, just throw me overboard. I'm not going. I am not going to Nineveh. Throw me overboard. He was mocking God. And God said, not that easy, Jonah. Not that easy. So exhausted and scared, the sailors pray a, prick, uh, a, a quick prayer to pardon, of uh, pardon to God for what they're about to do. And with that, they toss Jonah overboard. So what role did God play in this drama? Talked about Jonah. We've talked about the sailors. What role did God play? It can be summed up in two words. Absolute control. And if you're worried about the direction of your life right now, let me tell you, you are living under the power of a God who is in absolute control. You may be running like Jonah, you may be, be trying to make everything work you know, in the, in the most positive sense, but wherever you are in life, God is in absolute control. The word we use to explain this prerogative of God is sovereignty. And it means, this is what it means, I'm going to define it for you. Sovereignty means that God does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, with whom he wants, for the accomplishment of his own purposes, and that those purposes are never overthrown. So what did God do in this story? In our text that David Burke read to us, he gave a command. When that command was disobeyed, he followed a rebellious fleeing prophet who wanted to get out of town. Then he hurled a great storm at the prophet and would have destroyed the ship and its cargo, killing the prophet and the crew to bring about repentance. God was in control. More than that, he used the lot of these, or the dice of these pagan sailors to, to expose Jonah's guilt. Pretty interesting, huh? No chances, no accidents. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Flip all the coins you want. If God says heads, it's heads. But more than that, God used Jonah's sacrifice to demonstrate to a bunch of pagan seafarers that he was the one true God. How did he do that? So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. God proved in that moment to be both the creator and the master of the wind and the waves. Think about it. This was true conversion. They, they could no longer just throw prayers up to the pantheon of gods that they've always known, whom they'd always previously called upon. They could no longer lay sacrifices before idols of wood and stone who neither heard them nor answered. Now, things had changed. They had seen the power and the grace of the sovereign God of Israel, and the Bible says they feared, meaning they reverenced and they respected Him exceedingly. He had exposed their gods for the phonies that they were while revealing His own majesty. And then guess what? Now these guys, this crew, they're done with idols. They're done. They're through. They offered sacrifice now to the one true God who had spared their lives. They made vows of commitment because they had met the true and living and powerful God. Many people claim, we talk about it often, to be saved or converted, but they still cling to the same Symbols of power and provision. As lifeless as they may be. They cling to money. They cling to status. They cling to reputation. They cling, cling to image. They cling to all those things. And they're dead, lifeless idols. But true conversion. Truly coming and submitting your life to Christ. Is evidenced by a changed life. And a convicted, convinced heart. That can only belong to the one who has encountered the living God. When you meet God. It changes you. It changes your priorities. You can't cling to what you were clinging to. You can't call on or pray to what you were praying to. It changes everything. Once you've seen His power in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, you can't, you can't unsee it. But lastly, God's sovereignty is seen in the final verse of this chapter, that we'll talk about more next week. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. People, as a sidebar again, let me just kind of tell you, people struggle with the historical reality of this verse for obvious reasons. There's problems if you're looking at it from a marine biology standpoint. They would say that there aren't any sea creatures that could or would swallow a man whole. Or that no one could survive, even if they did, in the belly of such a creature anyway. And that it is entirely impossible. But I want to just pose a very simple question to you. Isn't that what makes it a miracle? A miracle, to be a miracle, doesn't require difficulty. It requires impossibility. So that's what makes it a miracle. Some, because of the difficulties with this scientifically, they immediately dismiss the story out of hand. It's a fable, it's a myth, it's a legend. Others try to find an existing creature that could possibly do this. Others, stressed by the challenge, they imagine some prehistoric, no longer existing animal that has, that becomes a candidate for the explanation. But all of this, what I want you to see, don't, don't sit in the congregation right now and miss everything else I have to say this morning because you're trying to figure out if a fish big enough can swallow a man and he can live there. Because I'm telling you, all of that is missing the point of the story. Because the Bible speaks of the sovereign God and it says this, the Lord appointed a fish to swallow up Jonah. Think about that. He was in control of everything. Are you so shallow in your faith that you can believe that God can send a storm to Jonah and not provide a fish to do exactly what God wants it to do? Is it that easy for you to dismiss something like this? How can God hurl a storm at a single man and cause the dice to fall in just right and He couldn't provide a simple fish to do His will or even create one for that purpose? This matters. This matters. Listen to me. If you say, well, that's your opinion, Mark. You know, you, you can believe that. I just believe it's a myth or a legend. You're wrong. It matters. And let me tell you why. If you insist on dismissing this story historically, you face a huge uphill theological challenge. And that is this. That Jesus himself used this very story to illustrate the reality of his own resurrection. Did you know that? He said this. He said, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, meaning the grave. If Jonah is a myth... Wrestle with this. If you wrestle with the story of Jonah, wrestle with this. If Jonah is a myth, can we have any assurance that the resurrection is not? If Jonah is a myth, based on what Jesus Christ himself said, can you in any way believe that the resurrection is not a myth? I'm telling you that I will place all of my hope, all of my trust, all of my confidence in what the Word of God has said. If God's word said, I read this in a book this week and it blew my mind because it's true. If God's word said that God appointed a shrimp to swallow Jonah, I would stand here this morning and tell you I believed it. Because God's word. the Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. We're going to talk more about that next week. So I won't get too deep into those weeds today. But in closing, I just want to point out to you, just kind of setting up the rest of the story, three more chapters. Jonah's story tells us that God is in control. Jonah's story tells us that you are never going to be able to flee from him if you truly belong to him. Jonah's story tells us this, that God is a God who will stop at nothing to accomplish All of his will. And so, therefore, the wise among us will say yes to him with a completely whole and joyful heart, no matter what the obstacles that you might face. Would you stand with us? So, I'm going to talk more about this next week as well, but there's a great, as as much as Jonah had a hard heart and, you know, not really a role model, great role model, it's interesting that God in the Bible, like I said, this is going to be mostly the subject of next week, but God still used him as a great example, a great type uh, of of. The person and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Primarily in his resurrection, like he said, as Jonah's in the fish, I'm gonna be in the earth. And, and that was his that was his go-to to explain his resurrection. But there's more to it than that. All of us were at one time on a ship. <laughs> called life, called this planet, called earth, and we were perishing. And we were calling out to every God that we could imagine to try to save us from our mess. Every idol that, that was presented to us was another option for for us to call out to. But there was one among us who said that that he would take all of the the brunt of the judgment that we would deserved in our storm. And when he was cast out, the storm ceased. The powers, the raging powers, the tempest of sin and death and hell and the devil all lost all of their power. The waves calmed, the wind stopped when Jesus was thrown overboard. And then, like I said, now three or four times, we're going to talk a lot about that next week. But I, I don't want to just go from the story of a prophet and have you come and receive communion without remembering that we had a much, Jesus said it like this, a much greater than Jonah is here. And the great Jonah was cast out of the ship so that we might live and not perish. In the face of God's unveiled wrath, we survived. So I want to just consider that for a moment as we, as we come and take communion. The Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for the body of Jesus. Thank you that, Lord, when we were faced with the outpouring of your wrath on the ship of our life, Lord, that you sent your Son to absorb all of it, Lord. That our ship was able to sail on in peace and sail on, and safety, and comfort, while Jesus went beneath the waves. And we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that your your brokenness is peace for us. It's wholeness, it's restoration, it's healing. So Lord, as we take this element, reminding us of the brokenness of your body, we give you thanks with joyful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. In the same way also, Paul says, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus that washes us whiter than snow. We thank you that, Lord, though we came into the ship we've spoken of this morning with so much idolatry, so much Sin, so much God, just rebellion against you, Lord, so much so much self will that when you came and you gave yourself for us, Lord, we were able to to fear the Lord exceedingly to to offer sacrifice and make make uh, uh, vows to you, Lord God of, of undying commitment, Lord, the sacrifice of our very own lives is living sacrifices, Lord, and that was all enabled by the washing the cleansing, the purifying power of your blood. And so for that, God, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I want to read an appropriate benediction over you that speaks to the story we heard today. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I bless you in Jesus' name.